Hello, this is Kyle. Just a note before the recording. Uh, we did have a little bit of a technical issue, uh, so the recording was briefly interrupted. Um, and so you will maybe see a little bit of a rough transition from one section to the next. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's all that happened. So don't worry about it. You didn't really miss much of anything, maybe 20 seconds. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. So this is the first session of uh, our Brain of the Firm second edition reading group, uh, you know, hosted by General Intellect Unit. Uh, Shane and myself are both here, as well as many members of our community. Um, and today we are going to be reading uh, the two prefaces, uh, the preface to the first edition and second edition, uh, and the first chapter, uh, as well as the summary of part one. Uh, so yeah, summary part one and chapter one, let's think again. Uh, so the preface uh, to the first edition, uh, was there anything that stood out to people here? If you do have something to say, please raise your hand and I'll call you. Uh, the raise hand button is uh, under the, what is it? Participants tab, I think, yes. All right, Shane, go ahead. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, uh, an initial sort of interesting thing is that he's, he's kind of getting at that, like, um, the communication is all about what you end up with. Like, not, like, he's, 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 he's setting out immediately that he's going to build a kind of ladder of uh, language and a ladder of abstraction. But the point is that you come away with some understanding of the thing. And he's kind of okay if you throw away the ladder at the end, uh, which is really refreshing to see up front. Like, he's not asking you to, like, buy into some some cult-like reverence for the particular language that he's using. Um, I think that's the main thing that stood out to me from there. Um, let's just doubly check. Um, no, I think that's about it. Yeah. Uh, Jake? Yeah, there's a teeny tiny summary just after the title page before the preface um, where it says, brain and management structures are elucidated and continuously compared and a theory of effective organization is thereby evolved. This process should be not be thought of as an analogy, but as the pursuit of fundamental principles whereby self-regulatory systems are necessarily constructed. Um, I thought that was like a good framing for the way to interpret some of the way, like the, the lingo he uses and like, you know, that kind of thing for the book. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that, uh, introductory uh, blurb is actually not in my edition, uh, but it's good to know about. Um, so uh, a couple things that stood out to me here uh, was that, uh, first of all, it, both in this uh, preface and also in chapter one, uh, we see a lot of re references to Wittgenstein, uh, especially the like later Wittgenstein. Uh, well, they both come up, right? The Tractatus, uh, and then, yeah, we see some later stuff too, but, uh, it's interesting to see that come up so much. Um, I don't know how many people here have read the Tractatus. Uh, 
not not too many maybe maybe i'm the only one okay. a little bit okay yeah so uh it's a similar kind of like fundamental attempt at, at uh construction uh but i i think that um what beer seems to take away from there is this idea of these constructed conceptual languages being uh kind of instrumental and purpose built um and that communication is the purpose of their existence um so there's there's this real kind of like um yeah sort of like instrumentalist approach where it's like well if you understand what is being said then that's what's important that's what i'm trying to do here uh it's it's not about uh establishing something fundamental about reality beyond the bounds of human communication this is just uh, for that purpose um the other thing that really stood out to me is that uh in this in this first um edition preface uh, is talking about the um the system uh of this book uh being a uh a, a system that's composed of two subsystems uh, themselves almost unthinkably complicated called the author and the reader so as an author thinking about um writing as designing a uh system between yourself and the reader i think is quite an interesting way to approach authorship uh, so it's not so much like dictating something to the reader as writing with the affordances of the reader and the book in mind. Um, and I think that's quite a novel uh, way of writing. Uh, one thing that often comes up in uh, tabletop RPGs, you hear from designers where they're, you know, they're writing books as well uh, to be used, um, is that you can't, like whatever you design is not going to survive first contact with your reader. And there's, there's limitations to how much you can control the, the reader's interpretation of the text. Uh, and you have to design with that in mind. You have to, to, to write that way. And it, it seems like Beer's trying to do something like that. Um, and then the final thing uh, that really stood out to me is that he says the book uh, begins three times uh so it comes in three parts and it begins three times the first establishes some talk the second says what i really wanted to say using the talk the third hopefully says what the reader really wanted to hear given that he has already heard what i really wanted to say it sounds complicated because it is but i hope the approach makes things easier rather than more difficult so this first section we're going to be reading is uh the talk that is established so I, I think this is kind of like a language game that he's building here um and then uh the second is going to be eat your vegetables apparently <laughs> and then the third is like oh, okay now you're gonna get to hear what you actually wanted out of this book so i guess we can keep that in mind going forward <laughs> Uh, any other comments on the uh, the preface, uh, first preface? I have a small comment, not exactly on the content, but when I was reading this, like after listening to the CBC Massey lectures, I could just hear Pierre's voice in my head when I was reading this. 
Um, and especially on that part when he was talking about the ladder must be there. I could imagine him on a roof passing down the ladder, me climbing up and then I was talking about it at the top. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, if you have finished asking a question, please remember to put your hand down because uh, it doesn't do it automatically. Uh, but Jeremy, you had something to say. Yeah, um, uh, I think there's a little nugget in the dedication where he says, absolutum obsoletum, if it works, it's out of date. And I think that's really radical, an idea that we tend to judge, and Beer will talk about this a lot in the chapter and elsewhere, that our society tends to judge things about whether they work or not. And Beer's idea is if it works, it's already obsolete. And that it's, it's a prod to get us past the comfort zone of things are working into an innovative zone that's going to be a lot more chaotic and it's not going to work a lot of the time. And I suppose you could say that the reason why that principle holds is because if it is working, then it has already altered the state of the system it's interacting with. And so it would be out of date. And also, I mean, given the context of the first chapter, where change is happening so radically now, that by the time it works, it's ignoring current changes. Right, definitely. Uh, we are going to see that come up. Uh, uh, Shane, uh, you had something to say? Yeah, just just on the whole, um, uh, that absolutum, absolutum bit, I kind of think of it in ter because, you know, it's a thing I keep coming back to, but like in the kind of uh, Deleuzean kind of term of like the virtual and the actual, so that like the, observing the actual behavior of the material system, like it is already probing the virtual spaces of like possible future developments and the, the virtual and actual are constantly entangled with each other. So if, if one is like mono focusing on the particular actual behavior that is manifest right now and seems to be functional, you're already out of date because you're not looking at all the, the virtual possibilities and the kind of like gradients of, uh, of, of statistical possibility that are, that are about to, about to become manifest. Um, and I kind of see Beer's kind of thing here as being like really imploring us to like turn our faces toward the, the virtual and to like look at what's coming, that kind of like system for kind of a um, kind of operation of, of prediction. Right, yeah, we should sort of think multidimensionally about the, um, the nature of, of things and, and their causality uh, and a kind of like I don't know, I guess like post-Aristotelian way like you're describing. Uh, okay, uh, Matt, you had something to add. Yeah, um, uh, just back on, uh, you know, his like philosophy of, uh, um, you know, communication and writing and, you know, uh, yeah, I'm just really, really grooving on that. Like, you know, like, uh, um, uh, yeah, jargon can be very practical sometimes, but only I think if you're using it in a pragmatic sense, like sometimes you know, like writers will, you know, uh, especially well, leftist writers will kind of use words as these like words of creation that like have like this inherent magical meaning when, you know, like that's, that, that, that's really worth the effort I find. But, you know, like, yeah, like he's trying to just sort of create a system that can, you know, he's treating like the reader and the author as like, a, um, you know, uh, an, you know, uh, um, you know, a, a sensor package like on a plane and a plane's wing or something like that, you know, just, you know, systems that are just, you know, it, yeah, and I like that he starts from a point of, uh, um, you know, like, like this is difficult. It's difficult to coordinate things. Uh, it also reminds me of, um, 
I just read um, this book, uh, um, uh, Philosophy of Living Experience by um, uh, Alexander Bogdanov. And, uh, uh, you know, like his part of his whole thing, which I'm super into now, is, uh, you know, the proper aim of science is um, basically trying to create, uh, you know, crystallizing social labor that can coordinate social labor, basically. So, you know, it's, it's, and like, that's what you're always trying to do. And like, you know, the, the, yeah, I'm just grooving on that whole, on that whole side of it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll have to maybe do a, a Bogdanov uh, reading after this one. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, yeah, we, we definitely see like the influence of analytic philosophy on, on what uh, Beer is saying here a lot. Uh, there's like this kind of conventionalism where it's like, uh, words are only names. Please do not be put off by my names. Please have an agreement with me about them. Um, I saw say all this because I find cybernetics especially uh, leads to people to argue with fervor about names, forgetting the ideas they name, uh, though all communication runs the same sort of risk. Uh, so, uh, yes, let's, let's not get uh, too caught up in names, uh, <laughs> but understand uh, to our best of our ability what uh, Beer is trying to name with them. Um, all right, so perhaps we'll move on to the second preface. Um, all right, so the second preface uh, was written with the second edition. Uh, does not say the year. Does anyone know the year that the pref uh, second edition came out? 81 or so. 81, okay. Uh, 81 or 82, I remember seeing one of those. Yeah, ones. 81, that's right. Uh, second edition published in hardback 81 uh, and the first edition was 72 uh, so that was just uh, before the whole uh, Chilean revolution uh, I believe um, okay so uh, anyone have something to say about the second edition uh, Shane yeah um, the, the, there's a couple of, couple of interesting bits here but the one that really jumped out at me was um the, the bit about Prometheus towards the end, right? That like, uh, Beer is kind of going on about like, I mean, he's, he's had a decade to, to kind of reflect on the kind of, I guess, non-adoption of, of the ideas, right? Um, and the whole thing that like Prometheus is punished for being an innovator. But, you know, we, we just read uh, Organizing for Power, right? In which Prometheus is brought up as being a, um, you know, he, he's, he's punished for, for innovation, but also for rebellion. Like, it's the insubordination that earns him the punish, punishment. And I think Beer is maybe starting to kind of grapple with that kind of, kind of thing here, that, like, it's, it's not just that it's, like, a daring new idea. It's a daring new idea that um, challenges power. And that's, it's, it's disobeying the will of the gods that, uh, or the will of the ruling class that earns you their ire. Um, it's it's interesting that throughout this book, I think, like, and especially in the contrast between the contents of the first and second editions, which are more obvious in chapter one, that Beer kind of goes from a sort of idealistic kind of kind of bend on these things to something much more materialist. Like. Uh, so we have uh, just talked about the uh, preface uh, to the first edition. So, uh, continuing our discussion about the uh, second uh, preface, uh, Jake, you had something to say? Um, yeah, Shane said something about the non-adoption of the brain of the firm and the ideas in it, basically. Um, and you said this blurb wasn't at the start of your book, um, but actually at the start of the blurb it says, 
this is a fresh and significantly expanded edition of a book which has already become a management standard in both universities and on the bookshelves and managers and their advisors. Uh, I wonder what happened with that <laughs> and if it really ever left management circles. Um, I mean, that's a very good question, but I, I, I get the impression uh, that it didn't. Uh, so much that yeah. it, it like beer was not really known outside of management circles um, in the, you know, eighties, nineties and so on uh, until uh, we see um, Eden Medina's book come out. Uh, and then there starts to be a widespread academic interest again in beer's work. I think even within management circles though, like it's still, kind of novel right like it's still it's still recognizably not a part of the management canon um but then also like beer did have kind of world historical intent like his his, his objective was to completely revolutionize all human life on earth so uh yeah that that um that's a very very high mark to to aim for um, um but yeah even within management circles i think this is still kind of like it's remarkable how little has been really been learned even from this work at the mundane level of, uh, you know, just managing firms. Um, I think we'll go to Matt and then Jeremy. Yeah, um, uh, I, I think it is still like in management circles, though maybe it's like, um, like you know, like the Velvet Underground of like management circles. Because like I know, I know Lean Startup was uh, influenced by this, and like a lot of other, you know, like like I'll occasionally see like a, you know, if you see a blog that like talks about like Toyota Toyota practices and stuff, they'll also be talking about Stafford Beer. And, uh, there used to be a copy of Brain of the Firm in my co-working space, but then it disappeared. I would love to meet the person who uh, who brought it there. <laughs> nice. Uh, Jeremy. Yeah, uh, one of the big differences between the first and the second edition is that neoliberalism won in between. And so in the first volume, Beer was a well-regarded management consultant who'd written books. People used the books. The first edition doesn't mention Chile at all. There's nothing about Marxism in it. And so it just seemed like a book coming off of uh, Decision and Control, which was very popular. From his mind, it was coming off of the Platform for Change project, but that hadn't been published yet. So Beer had become radicalized, but he didn't betray that to his readers. And part of the reason is in Platform for Change, there's a section where he talks about hippies smoking weed in the park as a challenge to the status quo. And he says, you know, as challenging as that is, it's very easy to compartmentalize and control. I would much rather have my radicals enter the workforce, enter management, and enter the boardrooms, because it's the boardrooms that need to change much more than the government. And so there's a sense that Brain of the Firm is a manual you could hand young managers to have them march into the boardroom with pitchforks and torches and overthrow the establishment. By the second book, two big things. One, there were PCs in homes. And secondly, 
um, neoliberalism had come into being, and the very idea that you would ever work with Salvador Allende made you persona non grata. And so he was much more despised by the mainstream, and he had much more to say about everyone having a computer. Great. Um, I mean, yeah, no, that, platform, that makes Oh, just one thing. In Platform for Change in 1970, he says, you know, in California, they have this thing called DARPAnet, and it's going to be huge, and it's going to change everything. And you should be paying attention to this because this is coming. And by the early 80s, I mean, there were enough people he knew who were using Usenet. I mean, the World Wide Web hadn't really gotten off the ground yet, but there were uses like email and Usenet that people were using. He didn't have to explain that to people. Right. Um, yeah, so I guess those are, those are two really important dimensions. Um, we can kind of see the first edition as um, maybe being a part of an intellectual current that was trying to reform uh, the Fortis Keynesian system in a different direction uh, than the neo neoliberal one. Uh, whereas in the second edition, there have been reforms implemented, but they're in a drastically different direction than what uh, Bure had hoped for. Um, Okay, anything else to say about the second preface? All right. Um, so I will just uh, quickly uh, read that section that was mentioned earlier. Um, so uh, he says, uh, the figure of Prometheus is pictured on a medal that was presented to me in Sweden in 1958. And the late uh, Eddie Verlander, who was in charge of the event, asked me what this figure portended. Of course, I replied that Prometheus stood as a symbol of science since he brought down fire from heaven. No, no, said Eddie. The metal is indeed for innovators, but the point about Prometheus is that he was chained to a rock and had his liver pecked out. Uh, I did not think at the time that he was exactly joking, but now I am sure he was perfectly serious. The reward and penalty structure and management heavily disfavors in innovation. It is a fact which demands fresh thinking if our institutions are to survive. Um, so, <laughs> is everyone ready to get their livers pecked out? Uh, let's move on to uh, the summary of part one. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Uh, so, summary part one, uh, comments on this. Uh, I guess I can comment. Um, there is a part here that I can't find right now. Oh, yeah. Um, we must also get at the nature of the way huge numbers of states in the system soak each other up, which is the subject of Ashby's law. It turns out that organization exists precisely to implement that cybernetic law, um, which I guess he says there is foreshadowing chapter 15, but... Yeah, and we saw that in his talk uh, also on uh, the CBC Massey lectures, uh, that, that discussion was there. Um, so uh, he does mention a couple things about, uh, so he, he lays out that uh, chapter one, um, 
is uh, addressing this issue of the rate of change. Uh, so the, the theory that he's going to put down in this first chapter is that uh, the rate of change is such that we cannot keep doing things the way we've been doing them before. We need a new method of management in order to adapt uh, productively to our circumstances. And if we don't, there's going to be dire consequences. Um, the second chapter uh, is the one where uh, we see a lot of terminology uh, introduced. Uh, so uh, it says, if, if chapter two is read carefully and the reader doggedly refuses to be put off, he will be armed with the first set of tools he needs. So I think um, it's, uh, it's, it's fair to say that this might be a little bit similar to uh, the first chapter of Capital, the little hurdle you got to get over to keep reading the book. Uh, but I, I think we'll do okay. Um, chapter three is where we start to use the tools. Uh, so analyzing the fundamental problem of management, management of complexity, as was already mentioned. Um, and uh, by the end of chapter three, it should be clear why things cannot be organized down to the last iota and why in human terms we should not even want to try. So I think this is pretty um, significant, uh, especially today when we look at the uh, coronavirus uh, management. Um, there's a lot of proposals being put in place about um, digital tracking of individuals who are infected and how to use that information. Um, so, you know, or not organizing things down to the last iota would be the beginning of Beer's advice, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, Shane, you had something to say on that? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just really interesting that like our... Um, uh, in general, our kind of way of thinking about solving problems is basically still based on like Laplace's demon, right? Like, what what if we knew the position and velocity of all particles in the universe? We could we could just solve all problems directly. And Beer is just saying, no, like I'm gonna I'm gonna prove to you in 600 pages why that can never be possibly be the case. But it's still like, how is this still a novel thought? Like, it, it is weird that like in modernity, modernity has like this extreme problem of like. Uh, scientific kind of positivism at its absolute fucking core that like it seems that no matter how hard you shake it you just can't really can't really dislodge that kind of fundamental mistake in a, in our kind of modeling of what the world even is and what kinds of control are even possible um, so it's it's remarkable that remark that beer's position is remarkable you know um, yeah uh, Brett you had a comment uh, you're still muted Brett Sorry, uh, I mentioned this in the chat, um, but this does actually remind me a lot of Capital, now that I think about it, in terms of how he structured it. Uh, he's just more explicit about it, that's what he's doing, where Greg Marx just says, says you know, uh, <laughs> here you go. and here <laughs> There's no royal road to science. Get on with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's... that's uh, True, I think you could definitely see uh, volume one kind of starting over a few times. Um, the other volumes, you know, are a little bit more haphazard, but as far as volume one being very structured, uh, it does take that kind of approach for sure. Um, and, uh, okay, so uh, 
to get to what Shane was saying, um, uh, he says, uh, by understanding these principles properly, we may well be able to facilitate regulation without imposing it. And that is something all good managers try to do. There are some more new words here, which experience again shows to be useful to managers with an account of a deceptively simple little machine, which I call an algodonode. Um, so he says, why another new word? The answer is no one has actually isolated this mechanism before, and therefore it has no name. We all know about it, but the intention of cybernetics is to try to make such vaguely understood tricks perfectly explicit and clear so that we really know how to use them. Uh, in, chapter, in chapter five, the simple algonode is used as a building block to construct a larger system. And the object of understanding that system is to discover the meaning of hierarchy and organizations. Uh, Jake, you had a comment? Um, yeah, that part there about facilitating regulation without imposing it, that did make me think about the way a lot of people describe capitalism. Um, like people making free choices and no one's putting a gun to your head. Everyone gets to decide on their own. Um, ign often ignoring the role of the state in facilitating capitalism, if you know what I mean. Um, and I was wondering to what extent the idea of facilitating regulation without imposing it would ideally apply to like a communistic system. Um, I was trying to think about that, but I didn't come up with any good ideas. So <laughs> just, that's... That's my random thought. Um, without well, in, in theory, uh, you know, communism should transcend bourgeois right. So we get the uh, true freedom, uh, not the false uh, freedom of bourgeois liberty. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. Uh, this, this would hopefully be some sort of a groundwork to achieve that um, instead of having uh, legal freedoms only and the kind of, uh, you know, ideology of personal consumer choice. Um, uh, so uh, third creed, you had something to say? Uh, you're muted still, you're still muted. Can you hear me now? I was gonna say that in the capitalist system that, it, that management seems to be mystified or is this as explicit? It's just a soft hand in the sense that it involves both pleasure and pain, not a soft hand in the sense that it's trying to manipulate you without you knowing about it. So I think that's a distinction. Yeah, and that's absolutely um, a necessity in organizing communism, right? Because uh, the thing about so the thing that we sort of see in crisis situations like this where the state intervenes in large-scale regulation of society um is that the freedom we see under capitalism is largely apparent and as you said mystified um so there will be steps uh people will step in to reassert control uh and the state will have that visible hand as opposed to the invisible hand of the market. Um, all right, uh, Matt, I think you were up next. Matt? Yeah, um, I, I'd say that, you know, that, that's part of capitalist rhetoric, but I mean, you know, like, it's not what they actually do. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that makes a capitalism is, uh, you know, it's for the benefit of the tiny shareholder class. I mean, you know, people living in a company town, you know, aren't experiencing 
uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, yeah, you know, any kind of local autonomy. The yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, like, uh, um, yeah, th- th- that's just not what happens under under, under capitalism. Yeah, you know, the difference in capitalism, communism, isn't really even so much the planning. There's tons of planning under capitalism. Most of the tools that you know that we're going to use, you know, were developed by capitalists for capitalist ends. But uh, um, uh, um, or you know, by by the bourgeois state for the military, and then eventually commercialized by capitalists. It's about you know whether uh, the gains go to you know social good or building a giant pile of gold for Jeff Bezos to sleep on like a dragon. Yeah, uh, and I think the thing I was going to mention before is that in moments like this where the state does step in explicitly, uh, we see things get politicized in a different way, uh, a way that is more similar to the kind of political uh, problematic that comes up under socialism or communism, where if society is organizing itself uh, outside of this mystified organizational system, then the problems of management uh, become much more direct, right? Like you, you kind of know who's responsible in a sense uh, in socialism or communism. You can't just like say, oh, market forces, like just kind of wave your hand at these abstractions. Um, and so it's necessary to have a good management system like the one that Beer is trying to lay out here, because otherwise you are going to lead, uh, it's going to lead to direct political conflict and social breakdown uh, because there isn't a mystifying force to kind of blow off steam. Um, Steve, you had something to say. Uh, yeah. Just to echo a little bit of that. I mean, I was a little surprised um, towards the end of the chapter. And I think this comment here sort of foreshadows it, which is like so much of, what he seems to be getting at is like changing the hegemonic thought here, right? Because like th- that's sort of the regulating force that um, he wants to impose, right? If we change what our, our goals are outside of like market forces and put it more into this sort of communistic, uh, you know, hegemony or hegemony, um, you know, that's that that could sort of turn things on its head. And I I wasn't really expecting that going into it, so I was kind of pleasantly pleased that that's sort of the direction that he seems to be going in. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Matt, you have a final comment there? Um, uh, uh, the the, um, the um, lower hand thing just, just, didn't, uh, just didn't work. Okay, gotcha. All right. Uh, so I think with that, we'll move on to chapter one. Let's think again. Uh, are there comments uh, for chapter one? Brett, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious as sort of generally how serious we could take his graphs if they're more if you think of them more of like rhetorical tools and or like not because they're clearly not data driven per se. They're just they're more just rhetorical tools. I just don't know how we could take them. You know what I mean? Uh, so are you speaking here about figure one or the ones after it? Figure one answer the ones after it. Which I guess he does mention that uh, that figure one does come from a science journal, but I just. He speaks very authoritatively and authoritatively, and I'm thinking he's more using them as a rhetorical tool, not necessarily a authoritative. Like this is this is how this is working. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So I think in the in the in the case of Figure One, uh, we do kind of have to take this as him presenting facts because it is uh, evidence that he is bringing to argue for his point. Um, now, notably, uh, when he talks about uh, sigmoid uh, development later in the chapter, 
uh, he describes how this, uh, these, these curves tend to tail off. And absolutely, when we look at the capacity to travel at speed, we have seen that sigmoid development happen in the years since this book was written. Um, yeah, I was just going to mention with the Concorde not being a thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, this is something that came out in the, the essay that uh, uh, I mentioned in every episode of General Intellect Unit. Uh, <laughs> David Graver's flying cars of the falling rate of profit. Uh, it's like, why, why did this curve become sigmoid was one of his big questions. Um, okay, but we have a lot of comments coming up. So uh, let's go to Mark. Uh, oh my! Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. I was just gonna say uh, it must have been that Graber essay because it's like it's funny. He almost took that like right at the point <laughs> that the sigmoid, you know, that the curve leveled off. So it's like, oh well, I'm glad he got right into sigmoid curves because <laughs> he almost predicted that. But yeah, anyways, just a minor point. Uh, which uh, following Graber uh, happens to coincide with Margaret Thatcher. Oh, um, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I thought no, I thought it was actually like pretty much right around 1970, but maybe I'm getting that from somewhere else. Oh, this uh so this I wonder if this is this must be from the first edition actually, yeah. But uh, the second printing would be around Thatcher's time, 81. Um uh okay, uh so Jake, let's go to you. Um yeah, on this curve I spent a lot of time looking at this and trying to work out whether or not exactly as was said that whether or not it was rhetoric or kind of really serious point. I think somewhere in this chapter, I can't find it. He says something like there are logistic, uh, sorry, sigmoids on sigmoids. So not only do these individual technologies have these drop-offs here, which forms like the enveloping curves, which is, is itself itself the sigmoid above that. He posits like sigmoids on top of that as like technological epochs beyond individual technologies and beyond their exponential growth, like even beyond that, like these epochs, which are themselves exponential. Um, and that kind of blew my mind when I was trying to think about like what that means. And then is there a, like, is there a curve on top of that as well? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So I was trying to think like, is this analogy or is this really the way things are? And if that's really the way things are, then wow, <laughs> you know? Right, absolutely. Um, it's kind of theoretical. It kind of reminds me of like the the Kondratiev waves uh, as like a speculative <laughs> uh, argument. Um, Jeremy, uh, go ahead. I was going to say the envelope curve is exponential. That's even more than exponential because the the y axis is exponential. Um, so it's hyper exponential. But the envelope curve is tracing a bunch of sigmoids. So later on in the chapter, he's going to talk about how you transition from technology A to technology B. And each of these is a step from technology A to technology B to technology C to technology D. In Platform for Change, there's an essay in which he uses the same idea of the transition from technology A to technology B, but he poses it more as a transition from paradigm A to paradigm B. So in a sense, where this is coming from is the idea of shifting realities, each one of which is gonna have its logistic progression, but that the envelope curve as you surf these different technologies is going to be hyper exponential as the experience of jumping from 
logistic curve to logistic curve to logistic curve as they emerge and evolve. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, again, that, that very much uh, rhymes with what Graeber was saying in his essay. Um, uh, sorry, Matt, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so so uh, it was funny, on, on the, uh, right before I read this, um, uh, I, I came across um, um, a, a paper by a physicist um, uh, that, that I posted in the chat, basically, you know, just sort of mapping on, um, you know, who studies like a, um, a phenomena that have the, um, yeah, that, that like logistic curve like tendency, like, uh, like, sort of like, like, like liquid spreading um, uh, across like a flat surface will, will, will look like that. And uh, um, yeah, like he just applied it to, the, the, apparently there's just a lot of like economic things that actually like really do like, like have like this exact um, uh, shape, you know, he maybe overreaches like a little bit, you know, the, 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 the takeaway of it. And that's, you know, capitalism is so innovative because it can keep, you know, uh, stacking the, the, uh, uh, the S curves upon the S curves. But I mean, you know, but like the, the, the idea that uh, 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 this isn't just like a thought experiment, like, like I think this is like a real like part of like economic life. Yeah, certainly uh, we see, um, in under capitalism, a power law distribution of wealth. Um, and so that's why we have the, you know, uh, people who own half the wealth in the world can, you know, all fit in a van, um, uh, kind of situation. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely evident in, uh, many areas of economics. I, I remember reading, um, an interesting, uh, article once that was describing how, um, you know, this is also typical of uh, educational outcomes uh, in, in school systems, uh, but uh, it was notable that uh, Finland uh, had managed to not produce that, that curve of outcomes. Um, so yeah, it can happen. It's just uh, quite rare. Um, okay, so uh, third, oh, uh, let's go to Shane. Shane's got uh, their hand up. Yep. Um... I think if, uh, one thing that jumps, jumps out at me is that this is, um, it's very interesting that he, uh, Beer here right at the start is dealing with the problem of acceleration, like techno-capital acceleration. So, but un unlike Nick Land, like his, his, mate, his brain isn't completely fried by meth. So um, he actually has a kind of a sane take on things and is able to think about like, you know, scientifically, how would we adapt to these accelerating curves? Because it's, I think for Beer, it's not actually impossible to perform that kind of adaptation you would have to become something very adaptive and very fluid to do so, but it doesn't, it's not outside the realm of possibility. Um, and then when he gets on to talking about adaptation, he kind of, uh, he gestures in that direction, right? He's, he's kind of saying that like, uh, you know, the generation gaps, right? Like between, between generations are like, seem to be more and more uh, extreme. And he hopes that that continues to accelerate because like the next generation is going to have to be, essentially alien to us if they're going to actually survive and he's like yes cheer them on i, I hope they're unrecognizable uh, as 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 subjects uh, from our perspective um which is quite quite a, a quite a, quite a nice sentiment to think uh yes we we all welcome our zoomer overlords um <laughs> they will be as uh, unto aliens to us mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, uh and jake you had something to say yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, I feel like, given our political leanings, maybe we should talk about the bit when he talks about industrial revolutions and like revolutionary change versus gradational change and uh, things like that. Um, I can't quite make what he's trying to say, but it seems like he's not rejecting the idea of like sudden change, but re rejecting the idea that there's like a jump 
everything goes in kind of a curve, even if the curve is very steep. Um, nothing goes from one spot to another in like a like a discontinuous kind of jump. Um, that's what I kind of took for it. Um, but then there are these kind of things in nature like punctuated equilibria, um, if that's the way evolution really goes, or like the bifurcation theory and things like that, they do seem to come up in nature. Um, so I'm not quite sure that, you know, nature does not make jumps. But again, maybe this is a rhetorical point or... Uh, can you just give us a page number uh, on that? This is on page six, it. paragraph two, on the version uploaded to Discord. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, I'll just read some of this so we can go over it. Um, so the complaint which I am laying specifically at the door of our own culture is just this. We suspect that when someone invented the crossbow, warriors talked in their messes about this meaning the end of civilized war as we know it. The same thing happened with the tank, with poison gas, with the magnetic mine. But with hindsight, we perceive that these innovations fitted a pattern of development and that each advance in the technology of attack rapidly drew forth, however unlikely the transfer seemed, an equivalent technology of defense. And so in industry, we still speak of the industrial revolution, but this again, with hindsight, no one any longer believes to have been a real revolution. It was part of evolution. Thus, today people are still culturally disinclined to acknowledge anything special about the technological marvels they witness in these decades. They play it cool. And it is not my own argument that we should point to exceptional incidents and declare, the world has radically changed. The first lunar landing was indeed the crossbow of its time. The philosophers of science, too, would endorse the cultural verdict. They declare that the universe proceeds by continuities and there are no special events, or as their predecessors used to say in the Middle Ages, natura non facit saltis, uh, nature does not make jumps. Uh, against all the cultural, historical, and philosophical evidence that there is no real problem in adaptation because product, progress itself is evolutionary, there are still the dinosaurs. They were overtaken not by hydrogen bombs or any other special events, but by the rate of change. So we ourselves, although we need to not be bamboozled by the mere existence of a space rocket or a computer, have to look at the rate of change which such technological achievement represents. It is to the rate rather than to the changes themselves that we have to adapt. Um, yeah, so this is, this is getting to a very, 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 very long-standing uh, subject of scientific controversy and philosophical controversy which is uh, whether or not there are discontinuities in nature. Um, so, uh, Jake, uh, you had something further to say about that? Um, I, I think I made notes on it later on that I can't quite find. Um, but yeah, just coming to my mind with these ideas of punctuated equilibrium and, uh, you know, things not... I guess if you, like, made the sigmoidal like slope sufficiently steep, you could account for even things like that. And I started thinking like, maybe this notion of a sigmoid is kind of maybe too general a thing because um, the speed with which the slope of the sigmoid actually is like significantly changes the way you view that kind of change, right? Whether or not it's like going like this and then straight up or whether it's this kind of long curve. Um, right, I guess it's really a question of whether the rate of change is infinite or not. Um, uh, so, uh, third creed, uh, go ahead. So I was just 
I may be misunderstanding this, but you know, it seems like you can sort of have it both ways with his argument. Like the sigmoids are jumps of a kind, or there's a couple of inflection points on them. And then the envelope curb traces the sort of each sigmoid and says like, Hey, we can sort of notice there's a continuous pattern here. If you account for each of the sigmoid curves, you know, so uh, for each there's, there will be these changes. They will be rapid, but uh, the change of the changes, you know, the sort of jerk of it, like we can, we can understand it at, at that level. So it seems like you can kind of bracket that sort of longstanding debate. And maybe that's something he's saying and just say, look, we can make predictions about this, this curve, regardless of whether or not these represent revolutionary breaks or evolution at the time, even though he does seem to be arguing for evolution. But. Yeah, I, I think it's it's fair to say that he's um, sort of saying like, you know, the opinions of uh, the natural science of his time notwithstanding, this rate of change is still significant um, and needs to be grappled with. So like, you know, uh, there's there's been a there's been a very long-standing tendency in science to basically deny that this is possible that there could be these jumps, um, and it seems to be the case that in times of sort of like more revolutionary politics or political change, people start to entertain the idea a bit more. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, uh, he's like saying, just like you know, bear with me. This is still important. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think he's, th th this is a fairly tricky page, um, but I think what he's doing is he's, he's kind of caricaturing a couple of attitudes towards adaptation and towards change. Like when he says nature does not make a jump, he's putting words in the mouth of a imagined conservative interlocutor. And it is a very common rhetorical trick for conservatives to appeal to a constant nature, um, whereas... Beer is saying that nature changes constantly, like it is, it is an explosively dynamic system. Um, and that, you know, you, when things change explosively, you can kind of brush it off as being, like, as I said, they play it cool. It's like, oh, well, that's, that's actually just constant nature and so on. Um, but I think, yeah, there's, it's been said, I think, quite correctly that these, these things do stack up onto a uh, curve. So it's both, both continuous and discontinuous, but it's the attitude towards the change that I think he's really nailing uh, down there that, and particularly when he gets onto the dinosaurs, right? That like the dinosaurs were just, were, were fucking obliterated by change because they had that like, well, imagine the dinosaurs having that kind of like complete inability to adapt. So this is a problem of conservative and reactionary thought, right? That it, props itself up on an appeal to a constant nature and in doing so kind of ties its own noose by being unable to actually track the curve while it moves and that's kind of like I mean, if we can think of like the kind of landian acceleration sort of thing the problem that the thing moves faster than you do and it's a problem of like adapting your thought to match the speed of the thing because the thing cares nothing for your like um your attitude towards it. like the, the asteroid will fucking obliterate you if you're a dinosaur that's that's just how it's going to happen uh so he's saying that like these changes are happening and they seem to be happening faster and faster we need to have a better attitude towards adaptation we need to have a better theory of adaptation we need to adapt ourselves better um and part of that is going to be undermining these appeals to constant nature and to 
the apparent fixity of reality, like, uh, and to admitting that revolution, revolutionary change does happen, but also seeing that revolutionary change as being stacked curves. So, as we said, like, it's, it's kind of uh, having it both ways in a certain way. Right. Um, and I think Beer's position um, is actually maybe quite insightful because from what I read recently, uh, scientists are currently kind of downplaying the, uh, the, the, the significance of the, uh, was it the meteor impact, uh, that wiped out the dinosaurs and saying that it was really more kind of like what beer is saying here, that the rate of climate change at the time that they went extinct uh, was too rapid for them to adapt to. And that was already happening uh, independent of the asteroid in, or the meteor impact. Um, so, yeah, you know, this maybe is uh, valid beyond <laughs> just this particular use. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. By the end of the chapter, he's going to warn the reader what happens when senior management doesn't get on board with change and just flat out refuses to change. So he's prefacing all of this by talking about the rapid rate of change as a way of framing what he sees as a crisis, which is that management is too stupid to understand the necessity of technology B and why you need to jump to it because they're assuming that technology A is going to be great forever and we can just keep going with it. And so a lot of his bouncing between a flat rate of change and an infinite rate of change is warning that there are profound systemic changes coming down the pike that the management mind is just not even trained to look at or even acknowledge, and that this is going to send them into the realm of the dinosaurs. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, maybe one small kind of thing that's worth highlighting there is that um, when Beer writes, he's sometimes not really writing in his own voice. He's writing as a sock puppet of a kind of straw man, that like he's, he's, he's making a point as if it was a point made by somebody who he, he will tear down a couple of pages later right he's like oh you know some some people think that nothing ever changes and he's, he's gonna he's gonna massacre them like three or four pages later um so he, right. he, he plays with voices in a way that's not super obvious you have to kind of be, be fairly careful in the reading yeah that's very true um to sort of move on a little bit um I think that uh, someone mentioned in the chat that uh, uh, Moore's Law um, and its relationship to this kind of sigmoid. Um, and there is actually uh, a section on page seven here at the bottom uh, where uh, uh, Buer is talking about the, the rate of growth of computational uh, capacity. Um, and so uh, does mention, um, so he mentions the rate of change, um, but doesn't mention it uh, tailing off here. Uh, but we can sort of, uh, you know, make the, the uh, inference that this kind of phenomena would apply to computation as well, uh, as indeed it has uh, with, with Moore's law uh, being uh, well disproven by events. 
uh, okay, so yeah, in Heart of the Enterprise, this comes up more obviously, apparently. Uh, uh, Shane, you had something to say? Um, I think uh, it's maybe not exactly directly related to that, but he does he does mention like uh, especially towards the end of this chapter where he brings in the extra sections that are from the the second edition. Like he he tends to not really revise the text in situ. He he tacks on extra sections. He does talk about like the difference from like just computing to like microprocessor proliferation. Um, so I think like maybe putting words in Beer's mouth here, but I think a, a, a way of thinking about the Moore's Law thing is that, yeah, the, the Moore's Law of like uh, features on a single die has, has kind of ta tapered off, but there are vastly more dies in the world. Um, so that like the proliferation of the quantity of smaller processors available cheaply has its own accelerative quality, which is different and perhaps stacked on top of the, the, the direct Moore's Law thing. Um, and it's that, that would be in keeping with this kind of general theme of like stepping up layers of abstraction from like, you know, accelerating the process of developing computation in, in a single location to accelerating the process of developing like distributed computation across all of society by just making re like pretty fast cores available everywhere. Um, so yeah, Moore's Law itself tails off, but there's, a, there's another sort of stack on the curve that's like, what if everything was super cheap, you know? Right, and so this this capacity has been sort of known to exist latently uh, in recent years. We all know that like our smartphone is a ludicrously powerful computer, and so on. Uh, but if, uh, we've obviously had like a powerful demonstration of what Beer was talking about uh, with folding at home becoming the most powerful supercomputer to ever exist uh, over the course of the coronavirus uh, crisis, because. Uh, people like myself and others are just using their GPUs to help, you know, do protein folding. And it's summed up as, as a network aggregate to be the most powerful supercomputer ever. Um, all right. Uh, so any other comments about uh, chapter one? Um, he does bring up Malthus, uh, if we want to talk about that a bit. Uh, yeah, sure. Um so he uh so uh brett if if you have something else to to bring in please uh go ahead yeah well i just wanted to bring up i found a section in, in the page end of page of page chapter 10 but basically it sounds like he's basically saying what uh labor says in in the following data profit where basically like at some point capital like needs to it needs to decline it actually needs to decline because of the way it's, the way capital works uh, this is at the end of chapter 10, you said? No, at the end of page 10. Oh, page 10. Oh, okay. Page 10. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, yeah uh, no, I haven't read that much. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah. It's very interesting, yeah, that, like, I mean, this is, um, it is all about capital investment, right, and technical development, which is, you know, should be very familiar to us as Marxists. And I kind of wonder how much beer was kind of keeping the cloak on while also making an essentially Marxist argument uh, well, through this stuff, right? Because it's, it, it's, it's kind of suspicious that the, the, the degree to which he had to keep the mask on to sell some of this stuff to a management audience, right? I, I, I like that may be the case. Uh, it's also true that beer is of an age that he still would have grown up in a time when uh, among economists or political economists, the idea of a falling rate of profit would have been fairly common. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I believe gotcha. that Keynes uh, was a believer in the falling rate of profit. Um, okay. And 
uh, certainly many of the political economists uh, that preceded Marx uh, also believed in the falling rate of profit. It's just Marx's formulation had a, a very particular kind. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, that may be a Marxist thing. It may also just be a beer is yeah. old thing. <laughs> sure. uh, <Gotcha>. It kind of <laughs> it kind of basically was eliminated from economics after the Second World War. Um, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Uh, you're muted. You're muted. Uh, Jeremy, still you're still muted. <laughs> All right. Are we wrapping up chapter one? Because I have a few observations from later in the chapter. Uh, I, I, I would like to move on, uh, definitely. Okay, uh, so a couple of things. The, uh, um, the diagram figure four on, on page 12 is um, he, he wants to create a method of analysis where if you're at the portion encircled as X or the portion encircled as Y, you'd be able to tell the difference between whether you were at X or whether you were at Y. And all of that got coded into Cybersyn. So Cybersyn is designed to throw an alert if condition X or condition Y happened using Bayesian analysis. And so Beer sees these two scenarios as very crucial to making management decisions. And uh, the uh, and the other observation I would make, I, I'm looking at, I just tend to write notes in the margin. And on page 18, he says, an end is rapidly approaching to the medieval dichotomy between the animate and the inanimate machine. We've seen vast machines which swallow the men who work for them. And, uh, and men are no more than clogs in the whole assembly. We've seen machines embedded in men, such as electrical pacemakers for the heart. We've seen machines that limit men and machines which are extensions of men. The computer is a machine which rises above the amplification of muscular effort and the effort of control which is needed to be precise. This is something which can be used as an extra lobe of the brain. There can now be, indeed at some point there certainly will be, some kind of merger between man and machine, a symbiosis. It reminds me of something from the disco manifesto where they bring up the idea for cooperatives to use something that they call centaur chess, which is an idea um, that I think Gary Kasparov came up with, where when he was beaten by a, a an IBM computer, it got him thinking about the way computers play chess. And then they came up with an idea of having a team of a chess master and a computer and the team beat everybody, computers or humans. And they call that idea centaur chess. So like, you know, a human merged to a computer. And in the Disco Manifesto, they talk about decision-making in cooperatives being done via the equivalent of centaur chess. And Beer very much is talking in terms of this idea of centaur chess. It's one of his principal themes. 
Right. Uh, so we see kind of like a cyborg dimension or a, um, a, a bit of a post-human uh, dimension to what Beer's getting at here, uh, which is, is very interesting. Um, uh, Matt, I do want to get to you because you've had your hand up. Uh, I just wanted to quickly say on, on like the following rate of profit stuff. Um, uh, I think this that's also maybe um, a different um, uh, a, a, a divide between like um, economists and uh, um, management consultants. Because I mean, management consultants still talk about that. Like here's a Deloitte article, like from I think like last year, just complaining about you know hey, the, 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 they're defining, uh, defining it as the return on assets. Yeah, just you know pretty you know secular decline. Right. That's definitely a divide that. Uh widely persists uh, between uh, economics and uh, business school uh, literature, where the business school literature tends to be more realistic and the e economics tend to be more theological. Um, uh, Shane. Yeah, um, it's kind of yeah, moving on a bit in the chapter. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting when he gets to uh, talking about, you know, control systems and this sort of stuff, like he kind of steps up from oh, you know, what if we use computers to have a bunch of data and that's kind of fucking worthless and what you actually want is a control system and such. And the way he kind of uh, puts it in terms of like, you have your basic arithmetic of just adding numbers together and then you have your higher arithmetic of like understanding what addition is as a kind of operation. And similarly, he wants the higher management of kind of like stepping out of the muck of like immediacy of just like banging rocks together to make numbers or whatever and like, getting up to a higher level of what the, what the hell are we even thinking about here? What, what really is control? Like what's the point of all these information systems? Like what are we, what are we, what are we really getting at? Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do, I, it, that is followed by this bit on the, the, um, the machines, right? And like, it's, it's a very interesting gesture to a kind of like machinic ontology of like a universe that is literally made of machines in some sense that it is, um, complex dynamic systems bouncing off each other forever. That's that's the nature of reality, right? There's a, a kind of machinic metaphysics at work here. Right. Um, so uh, can we just uh, bring these together a little bit with a conclusion uh, where uh, he's kind of like bringing together this idea of the rate of change and then the... Um, XY problem uh, on figure four. Uh, what uh, does anything stand out there for for people? Uh, he does sort of uh, present cybernetics as an answer uh, to these problems, and deals with the. Uh, he does bring up the idea of like data overload, which we saw also in the Massey lectures. Um, how to get uh, useful information out of computers instead of just uh, data overload. Well, I think he even kind of emphasizes that, like, it's it's maybe not even information you want, it's control. And right, that the, that's the, fair. The control, this is kind of getting to a, a kind of pickering sort of thing, but, like, the, the, the imminent performance of control might not even involve representational cognitive kind of architecture at a certain level, like the... The, the, the system, the, the sort of meta machine, might simply perform the, the regulation of its own of its own accord. Um, I, I, I appreciate the way he's trying to really shift our attention off of just the the immediacy of like, oh, here's here's each box PC in front of us. Let's see what the beige box PC can do. And instead, thinking at much higher levels of like, 
what are we really trying to achieve with any of this stuff? And it, it might even be that the the machine, the, 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 the computer itself might even recede into the background as a kind of like incidental sort of thing. It's kind of reminiscent of like, I mean, it's not the thing we bring up on most episodes of GIU, but like the culture, right? Like, and how the action of the stories there is evidently supported by a baseline of like cybernetic computation infrastructure, but it's never really foregrounded. It's always just kind of sitting in the background because the life of the culture is the point. It's not the, it's not the information or data systems are, that are in themselves the point. The information and data systems uh, support life on these weird ring worlds or they, they support these, these bizarre kind of arrangements of, of matter. Right. Um, absolutely. So uh, he says, uh, we have seen the computer used in the role of a fast adding machine regarded as a quicker and possibly more accurate way of, quote, doing the sums. We shall need to regard it as something more than this and to use it far more intelligently. For more on though the computer may be, its huge capacity to store information, its fantastically rapid retrieval capability, and its vastly superhuman cap capability to juggle with thousands of quantified variables simultaneously, offer man an asset which, as it were, entitles the machine to an equal partnership. And that was just preceding what Jeremy brought up before about that sort of centaur relationship. Um, now, maybe we should move on to the, um, the second edition stuff, the second edition additions. Uh, let's think again, again. Um, so he says, uh, this is now the second edition speaking in its own right. Uh, you will have noticed that it was necessary to interrupt the first edition only twice as a matter of updating the facts. Recent pages could have been amended to say that cybernetics is now 35 years old and that there is some evidence that the exploding growth curves to refer to may turn out to not be merely exponential, but hyperbolic. However, I am not accustomed to apologizing for understatement, and the curves must take care of their own hyperbole. Uh, the arguments deployed in this chapter as originally written still hold. I have often been denounced as a prophet of doom, but it turns out that only my optimism was unfounded. It should be worth discussing why this was so, and obviously the keys must lie in those two early interventions that it was necessary to make. The first of them included these words, Adventurous ideas soon become constrained by the observed fact that their proponents cannot think them through to a proper conclusion. It would seem, and the old ideas prevail. It is not because they are successful, they are not, and the world is in a worse mess to prove it. Um, and then he goes on to talk about why change fails to happen. Uh, so any comments on this section? Shane, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I feel like I'm hogging the mic, but whatever. Um, I'll be quick. Yeah, it's very interesting here that he brings up, like, on the one hand, the uh, the insufficiency of I ideal revolutionary zeal or whatever. It's it's not enough to just believe. Um, and he does dig in, and this this is the second edition, right? That like he digs into the problem of like systemic reaction. That like um, it's not just that people refuse to think better. Uh, like he's getting away from that kind of initial slightly idealist kind of framing and more towards like, oh no, there's really material force here that like this, the, the, the existing hegemony just absolutely does not want to come down. Um, and it needs to be confronted on that level, um, which is, uh, I think, an, an, an interesting uh, way to develop all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I think I have other notes, but that's probably about it. Uh, Jeremy? 
Yeah, I mean, this this idea of the death of adventurous ideas just hits me right in the kishkas. It's like the it's so sad how many amazing ideas have been clobbered by people saying, well, what's your plan? I can't visualize where this goes. I mean, we're in the Anglophone world, we're dealing with, you know, the defeat of Corbyn's campaign and the probable defeat of Sanders' campaign by people who just can't bloody imagine anything being different than capitalist realism. And I, I think it hits really hard, this whole idea of what happens to adventurous ideas in the face of a dumb grinding status quo. Uh, yeah, it makes me think of that article that was recently run that said essentially that uh, the, the, the only thing that uh, Joe Biden needs to be president is to stay alive. And so basically presenting uh, a zombie as um, the candidate for president. Uh, and I think, you know, if that really says something about your system, if you're saying, well, the only thing it needs is to have a pulse, right? Like it basically our president can be in a vegetative state and he's the best candidate for president. Um, like in Warhammer 40k or whatever with the fucking god emperor. <laughs> the carps god emperor the, being fed psychics every throne. day. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did like that or this um, this dichotomy here because, you know, I think in, in sort of playing off with this zombie notion, right? Like, it's so easy for us to fall into patterns where to us, it's so self-evident that, you know, anyone with a pulse should be able to beat Trump. But, like, that's not true, right? And we need to be able to rise above that as, like, organizers and recognize that there are two forces at play here and that we do need to actually put thought and effort and work into making sure that our zeal can actually translate into, you know, convincing people and actually get, bringing people to our, to our side and, and make those arguments. Because we do have, you know, a big battle to, to wage against that status quo that's coming on from the other side. So like, we can't just blame them though. Like it is still on us as organizers and activists and you know, intellectuals, I guess, to be able to like come up with the best possible arguments that we can make. And, you know, anybody with a pulse is not the best possible argument we can make, especially if they also, you know, happen to be rapists. So um, I, I think it's good for us to like, you know, take, stock of that and make sure that we recognize that it is also our responsibility too and we can't just blame the other side when we're trying to fight for these things right uh rodolfo you had a comment yeah i'm thinking of this thing of bureaucracy defending itself and i was recently reading on the attica prison massacre the book uh, a time to die and there's a few paragraphs saying like there's nothing as dangerous as a bureaucracy trying to defend itself. So they thought they could win everything except replacing the prison supervisor at Attica because that was way too much because it was a, a bureaucratic claim. We can have bathrooms, we can have everything you want, but don't touch the bureaucracy. It just meshes very well with this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's very scary when you run up against these kinds of walls. Um, Shane, go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of, I've taken, uh, I, think, I think I've taken a couple of swipes at kind of idealism here, but I kind of want to walk some of it back and kind of um, point out that I think something very important that Stafford is contributing here is that he's picking out the, the status quo, right, as like uh, a kind of material force in the world, like it is a, a real thing. Um, I think because I think our, our the status quo, the, the, the kind of the problem of of our our moment is not entirely just economism or whatever. Or a lot of these kind of Marxist shibboleths, right? Like the kind of um, the usual way, and like you know that that kind of crude materialism you get, where uh, thought is written off as just being a kind of spook, a kind of a, a ghostly presence. No, thought is a material process in the world, right? Like in this this machinic ontology, and the status quo is a part of the cognitive architecture of the way the system makes itself autopoetic. Like it is, you know, it's, it's like the, the system brainwashes its subjects to permit itself to continue, you know, right? Um, so there is definitely an element here of, of actually thinking differently. It's, it's not sufficient to simply think differently either because you will be faced by a systemic reaction. You'll have to actually fight for it. But it is also important to think differently because, I mean, I think we have evidence, right, historical evidence that when you try to overhaul a society and then institute all the same kind of problematic control structures. Like, uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, you had like the um, control hierarchy that was still basically essentially based on like military control. It kind of replicates all the same problems, right? Like that, that these are, these are not uh, insignificant problems. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a certain kind of uh, way in which you need to push the boundaries of what is thought to be possible in the virtual space before you can really kind of start to actualize things that are actually different. And if you don't lay that groundwork by actually kind of imploring people to think differently or demonstrating different ideas to them, you'll just end up with another kind of thing of like, hey, let's let's kill the king and then install a new king. You know, and it's like, uh, it's the same old shit over and again, right? Um, yeah. Also, and like, you know, trots going out selling papers and shit again and again and again isn't gonna fucking help. You know, like it's, it's time to think differently, folks. Um, it's it's kind of similar to uh, you know that the event in the his in Russian history where the revolutionaries killed the Tsar and it just led to even worse reaction. Um, it's like oh well the cut off the head solution didn't quite work out. Um, Sk, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, maybe this is too big of a question, but. Um to both Shane and Rodolfo's uh, points about not going for the bureaucracy, what does that imply for like ab abolitionist perspectives? Um, like abolishing ICE, abolishing, yeah, oppressive systems. Yeah, I, I think that's something we're gonna figure out in the course of this book, uh, but uh, Rodolfo, please go ahead. Yeah, just briefly talking to that, uh, I'm not saying like don't go for the bureaucracy. It was saying like there is nothing as f more like more decent or dignified opponent than a bureaucracy trying to defend itself. So in the sense like if you want to reform prison, you're probably like you're not going to be able to do the same cops, right? You're going to have to fraud all the cops, build a new police force called something like Police 2.0, and then they said this is the most effective way of reducing police violence was to take all the cops mix them in different enterprises and call it the new name. And because they feel like it's a different structure with the same people, they actually behave very differently, which I found very interesting. That is really interesting. Um, wow. Uh, Matt, you've been waiting. Um, uh, uh, yeah, with, with um, 
but yeah, I, I think a part of our uh, job here of lear learning, you know, social science uh, stuff, and uh, especially uh, one thing I like about Beer's approach is that, you know, it's about teasing out like, you know, what's actually like a result of capitalism and what's actually kind of maybe uh, um, inherent to human social structures. And uh, um, yeah, and and uh, you know, like what you know, like what goes away once uh, uh, you know, like everything has to legally, you know, enforced by violence, you know, go to the benefit of a tiny number of shareholders versus like you know any human social structure just you know is going to have these dynamics, you know, and we have to figure out how to work with them as opposed to thinking that they'll just disappear in, in a puff of smoke. Because I uh, uh, feel like that, that, that's always a thing that revolutionary movements have uh, gotten stuck with. You know, um, uh, uh, yeah, they, they, they kind of thought that certain things would just disappear in a puff of smoke. And, uh, um, you know, like, uh, uh, you, know, you know, politics is, pro there, there, there's probably cer certain things that are hardwired to one degree or another. Um, uh, and just, yeah, and uh, um, I'll also read the, um, uh, the, the bureaucracy stuff. Um, I'm reminded of like, um, you know, one of the ways um, Augustus Caesar like seized power was um, he basically had all the power, but he let, you know, all the existing like senators and stuff like have their existing titles and, you know, he let them, you know, still like uh, do their, you know, uh, the Senate was meeting, uh, you know, when, you know, in Constantinople, like when, you know, the, the, the Ottomans were, were uh, blasting down the walls, like it was still meeting. And so I think I think there's something there. Like I think I think part of how these um, systems perpetuate themselves, like, is the kind of stuff that doesn't actually have power. So I think I think you can kind of trick power structures into accepting, you know, like a, a, a diminished state. Though, you know, who knows? Sure. So you can look at like the feudal remnants in British society, which are ample, um, despite the societies uh, clearly being very bourgeois. It is absolutely filled. Uh, all the way through, shot through completely with uh, feudal remnants. Um, Shane and then Jake. Sure. Um, this is kind of pushing up to the kind of the, the last page of the chapter, but I think it's it's kind of interesting where um, Beer is saying, like, you know, instead of just adopting, like for, for businesses, instead of just adopting computers and being like, oh, hey, we'll, we'll integrate this into our kind of quill pen architecture, uh, and just use it as a, a fancier and more expensive quill pen and actually make ourselves worse off at doing that. You should instead be asking, given a computer, what is the firm? Um, and by the last page, he kind of pushes that to a little bit of more of an abstraction, and it really rhymes with the kind of Marxist problem of like building a communist society out of the material components of a capitalist society. So that instead of, like, it's basically like, given advanced techno capital, what is society? Or what should society become? And it's that that thread of kind of mutated continuity from the techno capital that is developed in capitalism, uh, being limited by capital investment uh, architectures, and it having a potential much greater realization beyond. It's it's very much a kind of like left accelerationist kind of argument. It's kind of like a Cernishek and Williams kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. But I, I find like even throughout this early chapter, there's like constant resonance with a kind of Marxist analysis. And whether whether that's beer kind of keeping the mask on or whether it's just kind of accidental, it's just kind of resonance is is an interesting sort of, um, sort of sort of problem, but it's definitely there. And that's kind of why I think we've kind of insisted all along that this is this is deeply compatible with the uh, with a Marxist politics or a Marxist uh, uh, political economy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Um, yeah, um, just to tie into what Shane just said, like tying this into a lot of those like Marxist ideas and things like that. Often, what all you have to do is replace the word company or firm with whatever you want to analyze, right? And then you can kind of 
go ahead from there. But there's this quote on page 21, which says, um, like we were talking about politics and power a second ago. If, however, adventurous ideas are pursued, they may fail by definition, then all members of the body and those who appointed them would be vulnerable to criticism. Um, and I think as people here, we're all wanting kind of radical change, right? Um, and that does leave us with a lot of responsibility, um, not just for ourselves, but like if that fails, um, the future responsibility that that, that occurs. Um, and like we're all familiar with this from the legacy of the 21st cent the 20th century, right? Um, that legacy of criticism from a failed kind of experiment. Um, and so like thinking about these things like at this level of depth, the, the systemic level and really taking this stuff seriously, um, I think is very important because of that like huge responsibility we have of people driving for radical change. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think anyone looks very kindly back on how um, incredibly unprepared and under-theorized the Bolsheviks were on the transition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, they really just stumbled into it, and that had some pretty dire consequences. Uh, so hopefully we don't have to repeat that. Uh, <laughs> Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I guess I'm in, I'm in full agreement on that. Like, I mean, the, the Bolshevik case said uh, that the Soviet Union is pretty is pretty straightforward, right? But like, um, in more recent sort of leftoid weirdness, I think like we've, we we kind of have this kind of like beautiful losers kind of um, mentality. Like every time we lose, we're actually pr uh, rehearsing for winning or whatever. I think that's just a really bad kind of attitude. Like it's, we, we should like, because the stakes, the, the stakes could not possibly be higher. This is literally the stakes of the future and the stakes of like, actually constructing a, a society worth living in and all this sort of stuff that that really does behoove us to like do our fucking homework <laughs> like you know understand what the hell we're doing like this stuff that beer is going on about of like the the people with the revolutionary zeal with the bright new ideas not not actually understanding the systemic consequences of what the hell they're talking about it's pretty damning you know it really is damning and like I don't know. I just I, I I find it so I find it harder and harder to take the kind of beautiful loser stuff seriously. It's like, guys, no, come on, we gotta we gotta actually do do this seriously and actually win because uh, it's it's not it's not okay to fuck this up, you know. Fair enough. Um, Jake, did you have anything uh, else to add? Okay, uh, I'll give uh, Shane the last word then, and uh, we'll wrap this session up. Uh, so next uh, session will be next week, and we'll be covering uh, Chapter 2, Concepts and Terms. So uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, and uh, Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're watching this as a recording, thank you for watching. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Catch you again soon. All right, bye. Bye. Thanks, guys.